0: Okay, I invite you to turn to uh, 2 Peter chapter 1 with me. And this morning we're going to be looking at verses 8 through 11, which sets forth the importance of those seven virtues that we looked at last week. So we're going to uh, actually start reading in verse 5 to review those seven virtues. And then verses 8 through 11, Peter gives us, four reasons why we should be cultivating these virtues. The importance of those virtues expressed in four ways. So that's what we'll be looking at this morning. So I'll begin reading uh, the Word of God, Peter's second letter inspired by the Holy Spirit, starting in chapter 1, verse 5. Now for this reason also, applying all diligence in your faith... Supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing... They render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. May God bless the reading of His Word. So last week we looked at those seven virtues that were presented in verses 5-7. through seven. Thank you. And so what we're looking at this morning are some of the different uh, reasons why this is so important that we develop these seven virtues within our life. And uh, so when you think about what we studied last week, these seven different virtues that we're to add to our faith, our God-given faith, it's easy just to pass over those and say, well, that's a nice study and this... You know, it's interesting that Peter said that, but Peter is now doubling down to remind us why it's important that we pursue these seven virtues that he's listed in verses 5 through 7. So basically, we're going to uh, uh, begin working through this and see those four reasons of these, uh, why these seven virtues should be growing in our life. So let's begin in verse 8. Peter says, For if these qualities, or if these virtues, referring to those seven virtues that he's mentioned in verses 5-7, through seven, if they are yours and increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he says, if they're yours, but also if they are increasing. So what Peter is referring to here is what the rest of the Bible speaks of when we talk about progressive sanctification, that we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we come as a like a spiritual babe in Christ, and then we start growing and as we start growing the the power of the new life within us begins to have a greater influence on our life now there's going to be ups and downs in our christian life but generally the doctrine of progressive sanctification is that the the longer you live as a christian the more godly we should be now we may think about that okay i've been a christian for so many years and I'm not sure I, I, you know, we may think to ourselves, I'm, I'm much more godly than I was, or maybe I'm kind of stagnant or whatever. But, but generally, there should be progression in the Christian life. Now, part of that progression, the holier we become, the more sensitive we become to our sins. So we don't really think we're making much progress. So it kind of works that way as well. But Peter is stressing, if these qualities are yours and they are growing... They are increasing. So that in and of itself is an exhortation to us that these qualities are not just to kind of have at the beginning of our Christian life. They should characterize us today in our marriages, in our families, in the way we work. These are qualities that should live with us throughout the remainder of our Christian lives. They should be increasing. And if they are increasing, Peter says, then they will render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to see if I can slide it over. There we go. So notice that these qualities, these virtues are, are there. In your life, and they're increasing. Again, they'll increase at different speeds, up and down. Sometimes we'll go backwards, sometimes we'll go forwards. But if they're generally increasing, then you will neither be useless or unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord. Now, neither useless nor unfruitful, two negatives, makes positive. So, in other words, you will be useful and you will be fruitful in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. If we have those qualities and they are increasing. So the first thing he's emphasizing, and this is the first reason why we need to have those seven virtues and be pursuing them and growing in them is because they will make us useful and fruitful if we're growing in those virtues. Every Christian wants to be useful and fruitful in the kingdom of Christ. Now this is going to be in contrast to the false teachers in chapter 2 who are not useful and they are not fruitful because they are teaching heresies and their lives are immersed in sinful behavior. So this is kind of my way of setting up a contrast with the false teachers. When he says here in verse 8 that you will not be useless This particular word that Peter uses is the word found in the Lord's parable of the landowner that goes out and hires people to work in his vineyard. And he goes out early in the morning, he hires people, he comes back in the middle of the morning and there's people just standing around, they're idle. That's this word. If you're growing in these qualities Your Christian life will not be an idle life where you're just standing around not doing anything for the Lord. You'll be useful. You'll be active in the kingdom if these virtues are growing. It's interesting that uh, James and, and Paul echo the importance of this. I'm not sure how that... There we go. In James 2.20 it says, but you are unwilling to recognize, are you unwilling to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless. Same word. In other words, if you have a faith, but there's no works to your faith, then your faith is useless. Later on he'll say it's dead. And Paul reflects the same sentiment as Peter when he says in 2 Timothy 2 verse 21, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, referring to the corrupt opinions and wicked lives, if you cleanse yourself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the Master, prepared for every good work. As a believer, we want to be useful to Christ. We don't want to be idle. We don't want to be on the sidelines, on the bench, if you will, unproductive uninvolved. No, we want to be useful to Jesus Christ. And what Peter is saying, the importance of these seven virtues, if you pursue them, if they're important to you, if you're growing in them, then you're going to be useful. You're going to be useful to the Master. He adds to that the other word, that you'll also be fruitful. You'll be useful, but you'll also be fruitful. Because if we're growing in these seven virtues, the moral excellence, the knowledge, the self-control, the perseverance, the godliness, the brotherly kindness, love. If we're growing in those things, then not only will we be useful, we'll be fruitful for the Lord. In other words, it will prevent us from being like this guy. The one that Jesus spoke of in the parable of the four soils. And the one on whom the seed was sown among the thorns. And this is a man who hears the Word and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the Word and it becomes unfruitful. We don't want to be like that. But we've got to pursue by the help of the Spirit of God these virtues so that we can be fruitful for the Lord. We want to be more like this guy. The one on whom the seed was sown on the good soil. This is a man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. But they're fruitful. Even if it's ten percent, that's fruitfulness. We want to be fruitful and participate actively in the kingdom of God. Of our Lord. Now, this uh, <clears throat> this being useful and fruitful is in the true knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, as we increase in those seven virtues, then we grow in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just academic; it's being lived out in our life. Our lives are being transformed. So, the first reason why those seven virtues are important is it will make us useful and fruitful in the things of God. And that's what we want. The second reason why those seven virtues are so important is found in verse 9. And Peter says, "...for he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins." So if you're growing in these virtues, if your life is, is making progress in sanctification, then you will not be blind or short-sighted in your spiritual life. Now the word blind could maybe think, well, maybe they're not even believers. If they're not growing, if they're not increasing in these qualities, then maybe they're not even saved. And that's possible. But I, And that certainly can happen. But Peter, I think, is speaking to believers. He's speaking to the church. He's assuming that they know the Lord. And he's saying, but if if you lack these qualities, if you're seeing more sin in your life, if you're just showing more flesh than, than growing in these qualities, these seven virtues, then your spiritual life is going to be like you're blind. You don't see what you ought to see. And the next word, short-sighted or near-sighted, really I think helps to qualify the type of blindness that he's, he's referring to. I think really the type of blindness that he says is a near-sighted blindness. In other words, you can see things up close at hand, but things off at a distance are all blurry to you. I mean, how many of us are near-sighted here and wear glasses to, to correct it? Spiritually, you can get in that condition as well where you can see everything right around you, the circumstances right around you, and that's what we focus on. But the things at a distance, the future things, the glory things that's off into the distance, we don't see that. It doesn't impact us. We become blind to it. I think that's kind of what Peter is saying here. And primarily, what we don't see, what we don't, think about and meditate is what He says in the rest of the verse. We have forgotten the purification from our former sins. In other words, our focus is so earthbound, it's so on the materialism around our life, it's so focused upon the here and now, the temporal, that I've totally forgotten who I am in Christ that my sins are forgiven. I've forgotten my relationship with Jesus Christ. I've, I've forgotten the joy that I should have in my salvation knowing that all of my sins have been taken away and I will spend eternity in heaven with Jesus Christ. I've forgotten that. Because my mind and my thought life is so dragged down by just all the problems, the troubles, the trials, the stresses, and it just gives me that nearsightedness. All I can see, all that I can focus on is all the stuff right happening now. And this glory of the future, it's all fuzzed out. If we're not growing in these virtues, our Christian life will be described by this spiritual nearsightedness for the forgiveness of our sins, who we are in Christ has been put in eclipse. It's been blocked out. It's been stuffed away in a closet somewhere. And we don't have the joy of our salvation. David fell into sin, remember, in the Old Testament. And he was not manifesting these godly virtues in that time of his life either. And he totally forgot the purification of his former sin. So in Psalm 51, when he repented, one of his requests was, Lord, restore to me the joy of Your salvation. Because he had forgotten that. That's what sin does. We're not pursuing those virtues, but we have more vices in our life. It will obscure our vision of our salvation and who we are in Christ. We forget We're too influenced by the world. So what Peter is saying, this is the second reason. If you're growing in these virtues, if you're increasing in them, you won't be like this. So that's the second reason why we should be growing. Because we don't want to be characterized by those who are blind and short-sighted and have forgotten the purification from our sins. So that's reason number two. The third reason that he gives is found in verse 10. Which says, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about His calling and choosing you, for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. So now he's saying, basically, if you're growing in these virtues, you will be able to become certain about your salvation. You'll have the assurance of your salvation. That's really kind of what he's talking about. A lot of believers don't have the assurance of their salvation. And they want to know, what can I do? You know, I'm really sometimes, I just, I don't know if I'm saved or not, if I know the Lord or not. And what Peter is saying is that when you're pursuing those, these virtues, and you're seeing some measure of growth in these things, then your assurance will grow. The assurance of your salvation. So what does he say in verse 10? He says, brethren, so he's assuming that they're believers, be all the more diligent to make certain about His calling and choosing you. Now this word calling, of course, we've seen it several times already in Peter's writings. It refers to that effectual calling of God which sovereignly, brings us to faith in Jesus Christ. And he says, be all the more diligent. The implication is by pursuing these virtues to make certain about His calling you that your faith is genuine, that you truly have, have repented and put your faith in Christ alone to save you. And also of Him choosing you or your, make your election sure as a lot of translations put it. Uh, Peter, like Paul, loves the doctrine of election. This choosing by God. Uh, This is the fourth time Peter has used this word in his letters. Three times he used it in 1 Peter. Now here in verse 10. And I think that every believer should embrace and rejoice in the doctrine of unconditional election. And I think the reason why we should do that is because it's taught in the Bible. Unfortunately, many Christians don't believe it or think it's taught in the Bible. Their view of election goes more something like this, and you've heard this a million times, but God votes for you, and who votes against you? Satan. And then you get to break the tie, and it's your vote that determines the outcome of the election. So if I choose Jesus Christ, then I've cast my vote and then you have two against one. So now I'm elect because I've chosen God. That's not the way the Bible presents this doctrine. If it's all up ultimately to our vote to break a tie, then basically we have doomed ourselves to eternal hell. And why is that? Because we would never vote for Christ. In our old nature, with our old heart, we would never want to submit ourselves to Jesus Christ or to God. The Bible teaches that we're all born into this world with a a heart that is a slave to sin. A heart that is spiritually dead to the things of God. Very much alive to the things of sin but dead to the things of God. The Bible tells us that our wills are not free, though many think they are, but they are slaves to our sin nature. And I love what Jonathan Edwards said in one of his treatises. He says, the will of man is not some separate entity in our inner man. Your will is merely the servant of your heart. It chooses what the heart wants. That's what our will does. It's not separate over here all by itself, a separate component. No, it's merely the servant of the heart. The will will always choose what the heart wants. And if the heart is bad, guess what the character of the will is going to be? Bad. And that's why the miracle of divine grace must come in and change out our heart first. He takes out that heart of stone, Ezekiel 36. He puts in a heart of flesh that's alive and sensitive. And now I see my sin. I see Jesus Christ. I want forgiveness. And that new heart can't help but reach out in faith to receive the free gift of everlasting life. Apart from that, our wills are in rebellion against God. We would never choose God. We would never choose Jesus Christ. But God has chosen us. If you're a believer here this morning, God has chosen you. Not because of any good thing in us. Not because we were better than other people. According to His sovereign grace, He has chosen us. And this is something that we should actually rejoice in. Because God did for us what we could not do for ourselves. God chose us when we would never choose Him. He changed our hearts so that now we come running to Him for salvation. And if we have done that, it's because of His grace, His election, His new heart that He's given to us, and that should be a cause for great joy. That's what Jesus taught us To do is to rejoice in it. In Luke chapter 10, verse 20, Jesus was speaking to the 70 disciples who had gone out and they had cast out demons and done miracles, and now they're coming back for a report. And Jesus says to them, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. That God has recorded your names in heaven. And that's a reference to the doctrine of election. Now you may ask, well, when when were our names recorded in heaven? Is it right when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, then God writes our names in heaven? No. John makes it clearer. When in Revelation chapter 13, all of those who follow the beast show that their names were not written in the Lamb's book of life. And when? From before the foundation of the world. In Revelation 13, 8, all who dwell on the earth will worship Him. Referring to the beast. These are unbelievers. They're following the lies of the beast. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. So, names were either written or not written in the Lamb's book of life when? Before the foundation of the world. That's when the names were actually written. That's why Paul, Paul also says in Ephesians 1.4 when he says that God chose us in Him. When? Right when He sees you believing in Him, then God chooses you? No. He chose us before the foundation of the world. That's when God chose us. That's when He wrote our names in the Lamb's Book of Life. It was before the foundation of the world. That's when we were of His elect. He elected us to eternal life at that point. And that really is something that Jesus says, Rejoice that your names have been written in heaven. Rejoice! This is a great doctrine And it's a doctrine that ought to give God's people much joy. Well, again, back to reason number three. What Peter is saying the reason why we should be pursuing these virtues, because that's one of the keys to growing in the assurance of your salvation. If you're not sure that you truly know the Lord, that you're truly a believer, that you're one of God's sheep, One of Christ's sheep. If you aren't sure about that, then Peter says, pursue an increase in these virtues and you can make certain His calling and choosing you that you're numbered among His elect. You do it by seeing the evidence of a changed life. That's the key. That the more we grow in godliness, the more evidence there is that grace is in me. And that gives me the confidence, the assurance that I truly am born again and belong to Jesus Christ. So that's why these seven virtues are important. Because if you lack those seven virtues, if they're not in your life, then you should not have the assurance of your salvation. But Peter says, grow in them. And as you grow in them and increase in them, you can make certain about His calling and choosing you. You can know that you're of God's elect because you see evidence of His grace not only in giving you repentance and faith to believe in Him, but you know your faith and repentance are genuine because you see the evidence. You see some measure of fruitfulness, of growth in your life. And that's one of the keys to obtaining assurance. Jonathan Edwards in his book on religious affections said it is not God's design that men should obtain assurance in any other way than by mortifying corruption that is putting sin to death and increasing in grace and obtaining the lively exercises of it. Not to be obtained so much by self-examination but by action. So Jonathan Edwards certainly learned this from Paul and Peter that if you want assurance of salvation then grow in godliness and you'll have it. If you're not sure about your salvation then you need to grow more in godliness. And the Spirit of God will bear testimony with your spirit that you're one of His children. This is something that we find in many places in the Bible the importance of evidence To undergird our assurance of salvation. For example, John in 1 John 3.14 We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. How do you know you're spiritually alive? John says, well, let's, let's look at your life. Do you love the brethren? If you love the brethren, that's evidence that you're spiritually alive. You've been born again. James says, faith, no works, it's dead. You say you have faith? But there's no evidence in your life. Your faith is dead. He also says, I will show you my faith by my works. This is not work salvation. This is a salvation that produces works. That's what he's emphasizing. Then back to verse 10 again, Peter kind of wraps this up by saying, for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. And by stumbling here, I think he's referring to falling into apostasy, falling away like these false teachers are going to do in chapter 2. They're going to stumble. But if you're diligently pursuing these seven virtues in your life, you'll make certain about his calling and choosing you. And as long as you're practicing these virtues, you'll never stumble. Yeah, we're going to have ups and downs, we're going to fall into sin. We'll have issues, but the Spirit of God will grant us repentance and will help us to continue to persevere. So the assurance of our salvation is one of the reasons that Peter says pursue, increase in these virtues because that will make your, the assurance of your salvation more certain and sure in your life. You can know that you're of God's elect. Spurgeon was so confident of his salvation that he's quoted as saying that he could grab onto a corn stalk and swing out over the fires of hell and look the devil in the face and say, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. And I don't know if your assurance is that bomb proof or not, But what Peter is saying is you can have a certainty of your salvation if you see evidence of God's grace moving and growing in your life. You won't be like those false teachers, like the pig that returns to the mire or the dog that returns to his vomit in chapter 2. No, you will never stumble by the grace of God. And then the last reason that Peter gives for why we need to be pursuing these virtues, these seven virtues in verses 5 through 7, is found in verse 11. And he says, for in this way, that is as you are pursuing those virtues, those seven virtues, and you see them increasing, maybe slowly, maybe, you know, it's, it's very slow, and there'll be ups and downs with that, sometimes backsliding, but there's moving forward and over the long run of your life, you see some evidence of, the, of increase, then the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. So what does he mean by this verse? Well, the entrance into the eternal kingdom. The word for entrance refers to an act of arriving at a destination. And here, since he's putting it in the future tense, it will be abundantly supplied to you. He's probably talking about that future time in your life and in my life when we either die or when the Lord comes back and we enter into the eternal heavenly kingdom of Christ. We're in His spiritual kingdom now. He's on the messianic throne in heaven now. But there's a greater consummation to it. And we enter into that either when we die or when the Lord comes back. And eventually the new heavens and the new earth is a final glorious consummation of it. But I think what He's saying in verse 11 is you need to pursue those virtues because it will have a very blessed effect upon you when you draw near to the end of your days. And I know that death is not something that we like to talk about much, but certainly this aspect of having this eternal kingdom, our entrance into the eternal kingdom abundantly supplied to you suggests that it can help us in those last hours and days of our life, preparing to enter into the presence of the Lord Jesus. Death can be a trial. Probably death is the easy part. Getting to the point of actually dying is, is, can be the trial. But to those who have an abundant amount of these virtues, I think what Peter is saying is that their entrance into eternity will be abundantly supplied in the sense that it will be more peaceful. They'll have more joy than those who do not have these virtues. Those who don't have these virtues will struggle with more fears and doubts and bitter regrets than those who have been walking with the Lord and they're seeing these virtues grow in their life. And when it comes to the end of our life, Yeah, we'll all regret that we weren't more active or more godly or more holy in our life. But not as much as those who don't have these virtues. I think what Peter is saying is that the entrance into this heavenly kingdom will be abundantly supplied. And I think what he has in mind is just the idea that our passing will be easier. There is an abundant supply of the entrance that those who don't have these qualities will not experience. Those who have these seven virtues that are increasing will have, I think, great comfort in their final days as they remember the promises of Christ that I will never leave you nor forsake you. Even on your deathbed, they remember that Jesus is there with them. They will remember possibly verses like Isaiah 43-2 where the Lord says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when through the rivers, they will not overflow you. This fruitful and useful believer will face death and know that he's going home to be with Christ. And that will bring great comfort to his heart. Because to be with Christ is far better. Because remember what Paul said, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. It's better. And those who have been increasing and growing in these virtues and growing in godliness throughout their lives, when it's time for them to come to their departure... I think they will, though, have, will all have some regrets. But our eye will be on Christ. Our eye will be on his redemptive love. Our eye is on the forgiveness that we have from him, the righteousness that we have from him imputed to us. That will bring us great peace and comfort. Though it's, it's still going to be a battle, I assure you, for many of us. But what Peter is saying, that your entrance will be abundantly supplied. I love that the ending of Pilgrim's Progress, where Christian and hopeful have now approached the final barrier between them and the celestial city, if you've read the book. And that final barrier is they have to cross the river of death to which Christian asked the angels attending them if there was any other way. Is there any other way we can get to the celestial city without having to cross through this river of death? And those with him said, no. There's no other way. Of course, if Christ came back, that would be the only other way. But then Christian asked the angels, he said, "What?" Well, When we get out into the river, is the water all the same depth hoping that it would be shallow all the way across? And the angel said to him, no, it's not all the same depth. He said, you will find it deeper or shallower according to your faith in the King of this place. So hopeful and Christian enter into the river But it wasn't long before Christian, who's like all of us many times, was overcome with a measure of fear and doubts due to the weakness of his faith. For he felt himself sinking in deep water and the waves actually going over his head. And he was tortured in his thoughts that he would never see the land flowing with milk and honey. But hopeful... Who had a stronger faith said to his companion, Be of good cheer, my brother. I feel the bottom and it's good. So he had a stronger faith, and the and the, the river was shallower for him, but it was deeper for a Christian because of his struggles. But Christian continued to despair until hopeful said to him, Be of good cheer. Jesus Christ makes thee whole. And right before Hopeful said those words, Hopeful had tried his best to help Christian keep his head above the water. And sometimes Christian did sink under the water and Hopeful would bring him back up and and help keep his mouth and nose above the water. But when Hopeful said to Christian, I see the gate and men standing by it to receive us. And right when he said those words and he reminded Christian that he should be of good cheer because Jesus Christ maketh thee whole, that that is when Christian remembered the forgiveness of his sins which he had forgotten. And God's promises filled His mind of Isaiah 43 verse 2 that when you pass through the waters, I am with you. And when you go through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. And Christian remembered those promises and they both took courage and arrived at the other side. The eternal kingdom was abundantly supplied to hopeful less so to christian but they they both made it by the grace of god and i think that's what peter is saying why it's so important to pursue and cultivate these godly values and virtues in our life because they will pay dividends at the end when we are wrestling with all the natural fears of departing from this life and entering into the next, and that godliness, that knowledge of Jesus Christ that we have lived out, not just known, but we have lived it and experienced it, will bring comfort and peace to our hearts in those dying hours. Well, I don't know about you, but I... I want to be like hopeful. Who like Paul could say, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. And in the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. I want to have that kind of confidence. Or I want to be confident of hearing those words from our Lord Jesus, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Master. Do you want your entrance into the eternal kingdom to be like that as well? Do you want your departure into glory to be abundantly supplied to you by the grace of God? Then pursue godliness with diligence. Chase after those virtues. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Clothe your life with those virtues. And if we do, then by the grace of God, we will be useful and fruitful to the Master. We will not be spiritually nearsighted. We will gain the assurance of our salvation and our entrance into heaven will be supplied abundantly. Well, may God incline our hearts to pursue these things daily. To be repenting daily as we fall short daily. But to be seeking the the help of God, the grace of God, which can enable us to make increase in these godly virtues. And then we can reap the benefit of what Peter says as to why they're so important. Well, may the Lord help us all. Let's close in prayer. Our Father God, we do thank You, Lord, for just the teachings of the Apostle Peter and just the way he's laid out these four reasons why growing in godliness is such an important thing for us to pursue. But Lord, as... Peter has talked about making our calling and election sure. Lord, if there's, again, anyone here this morning that is not sure whether they are saved or not, Lord, let them begin by focusing on their need to look to Christ, to confess their sins to Him, to call upon His name to save them to believe that His promises of forgiveness are true, that God doesn't lie. And may they come to know the Lord Jesus Christ if they've never placed their faith and trust in Him. For those of us who know the Lord, Father, if we honestly look at our lives, none of us are where we want to be spiritually. We all experience a measure of those ups and downs and struggles and setbacks in our spiritual life. But Lord, don't let us give up. By Your Spirit, motivate us. Convict us. Help us to pursue these qualities that our homes might be transformed, that our lives might show more that beautiful, godly character of Jesus Christ. So Lord, just help us in these areas. Give us the evidence of a changed life. Not perfection, but we see a direction in our life that convinces us that we belong to You. So Lord, just help grow these virtues in our life. Help us to bear that fruit that You might be uplifted and exalted in all that we do. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.